kind of thing that I ended up taking this slot because our, our original speaker ended up not being able to do it. And normally this is like a 45 minute talk. So let's call it Designing with Empathy, Now with Less Empathy. <laughs> All right. Um, so in our work, uh, working on the web, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would say probably more developer than designer. Um, and it's easy to kind of get caught up in the latest technology, the latest trends that are going on, and those sorts of things. And a lot of times we start to lose sight of the people, the people that we actually create our stuff for, specifically our customers, um, and our customers' customers. So I want to take a few minutes to talk not about technology. Um, there will be no code in this, in this presentation. Um, but instead, kind of talk about people, uh, and talk about the ways that our brains work, and how we can actually make our work more human, um, and respect our customers and our customers' customers. And I'm going to start with a little story about monkeys. Um, so this is a macaque, and in the 1980s and 1990s, in, um, uh, in Italy, in Parma, Italy, uh, Giacomo Rizzolatti and his team were doing some research with macaques where they were actually placing uh, electrodes into the macaque's brain into the, uh, let's see if I remember this correctly, the ventral premotor cortex. Um, and they were, what they were doing is they were actually measuring how the brain fired when the monkey was doing uh, specific coordinated actions between its eyes and its hands. Specifically, when the monkey would reach to take a peanut out of a bowl they would see the neurons that fired in that process. Um, and what happened purely by accident is that uh, the electrodes were still hooked up to the macaque, and a research assistant walked into the room and reached into the bowl and took a peanut out of the bowl. And what they found was the exact same neurons that fired when the monkey did the action fired when he watched somebody else do it. So this was the discovery of what are called mirror neurons. Um, and mirror neurons are what allow us to empathize actually a physical manifestation of our empathy. Um, but I'll talk a little bit more about empathy in a moment. I want to talk a little bit about design first. So I'm going to talk specifically about visual design because I think it's a little bit easier for a more uh, wide population to, uh, to relate to. But when I talk about design, design could be in kind of the broader sense as well because we design databases, we design systems, we design user experiences, we don't just do visual design. Um, so this has kind of broad application. First of all, I'm gonna say that design is not art, okay? Design is actually for a purpose. Um, art is very much for self-expression. It is a, a means of kind of, um, you know, of feeding, uh, taking care of some urge that you have to get some something out there, some sort of feeling, some sort of motivation, um, and it's for us. And a lot of times when we start to talk about design, we kind of complain about the fact that oh, you know, our, our clients don't understand design, or they don't they don't understand, our customers don't understand design. Um, but I think that we lose sight of it as well because we get caught up in the latest fad, or we spend our time trying to come up with the next fad. Right? We start to, to think about design from a purely aesthetic standpoint. Um, when in reality, as, as uh, Jeffrey Veen says here, um, design is problem solving. That is the whole purpose of design. And if we look at the etymology of the word design, it means to, to devise for a specific function or end uh, or to indicate, from Latin uh, designare, to mark out. Um, David Carson is often cited as, as kind of this fantastic 
graphic designer. And most of you are probably familiar with his work through Raygun Magazine, which was really popular in the 90s. He did a lot of work with typography, which is traditionally a design medium as opposed to an art medium, right? Because you're working with words and letter forms and stuff. Well, I think a really good example of, of where his work started to move more into the art area is if you look at this interview that was done with Brian Ferry. And this was actually published in Raygun Magazine, and he decided to lay out the entire article in Dingbats because he found the article dull. Right? So this is, this is not him being a designer. He is not illuminating the content. He is not helping a user come to, or helping a reader come to conclusions about the text to, to make it more, uh, to make it more interesting to them. Instead, he's saying, this is stupid and therefore I'm gonna, gonna, you know, make this in dingbats because it's not worth your time, right? They did publish the actual text of the article in the back, but this was him saying basically either fuck you to the, uh, to the author or to Brian Ferry, I'm not quite sure which it was. Um, but this was definitely art. You know, this was his ego. This was him actually, you know, stepping out there and, and not designing, but to create a piece, but creating a piece of art. And David Carson, to his credit, is self-aware. I mean, he, he says that his own work is very subjective, very personal, and self-indulgent. Self um, and the reality is that, that our ego can get in the way and can prohibit us from actually doing what we're supposed to do as designers because we get caught up in, in trying to do something new and interesting and innovative and exciting to us and that expresses the real us, right? Trying to, to have us on a web page or on a poster. And we end up doing stuff like this, classic skip intro style things where maybe all of a sudden the website morphs into this huge planet and somebody has to fumble their way around to figure out that, hey, that's actually a link. Um, this is mystery meat navigation. This is something that Jared Spool talks a lot about. And, you know, you may be able to convince yourself if you're working on a project like this, this is uh, for what's on, what's on Toyota's Mind. Uh, it was a site that came out a number of years ago. Um, and it, it is supposed to be more of an experiential thing. Um, and so you might say, okay, you know, maybe the, the mystery meat navigation thing is all right as an experience because you want people to discover things. But when we do stuff like this, it inevitably translates out to more for lack of a better term, pedestrian projects. So this is Yeshiva of Flatbush, um, which is a, a Jewish school. And you probably wouldn't get it from looking at it, but those circles are actually the main navigation of the site. How usable is that for a school? Right? And there are countless examples of this sort of thing, um, which is why kind of the, the mantra in, in my head when I'm working is always, just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? I think another example, for those of you who were here for our first Code and Creativity, we had um, Nicholas Zekas up here on stage, and he was talking about JavaScript and our overuse of JavaScript, and how we JavaScript all the things because we can, right? It's a, it's a fun technology, and so, you know, need CSS? Do it in JavaScript. Need HTML? Do it in JavaScript. Um, yes, it's possible, but is it the best course of action? Not really. Um, and when it comes down to it, we have to remind ourselves that design is not about showing off, right? We don't design to get laid. We shouldn't design to get laid, at least. Some of us may. Um, but your job as a designer is to solve somebody else's problem, right? To illuminate content, to, to help somebody pay their electric bill online, to help somebody sign up for, for some service that they need. 
right? It's not to, to show off, it's not to experiment with some new technology that may get in the way of somebody being able to do what they need to do. Um, which brings us back to empathy. So empathy comes from the, the Greek word empathia, meaning state of uh, emotion. And what it basically means is someone's ability to actually relate to the, the situation of another, to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. Okay? It's also the, oops, I thought I skipped that video. Um, so it's, it's really about being able to take on the perspective of another person, right? To be able to, to see things from their point of view. It's also about being able to, uh, to have the capacity for this. So, for example, the cat in this situation, outside the window, may never have had a cone on his head, but he can understand that, dude, that sucks. So, from the standpoint of somebody working on the web, what does this translate over to us? Um, well, we should be thinking about the content that we're authoring and making sure that that is actually appropriate to our users. We don't want to throw up crazy errors like this I don't even know, 0x78495k font explorer converted doc text key. How is that helpful to a user? It's not. But we see this sort of thing all the time in crazy error codes. Even, even from such lauded companies as Apple, how many people have gotten just bizarre uh, error codes from iTunes? Like really, really strange things. And that's not very helpful to the user. Explain what it is that goes on or don't show it at all. Right? Why show the error if you're not going to give somebody anything actionable to do with it? Okay. Another one is to actually set a performance budget. And this is something that not a lot of people, at least the, the folks that I've been speaking to around here, have, have thought much about. But the idea of a performance budget is you say, okay, for any given page on the site that I'm building, this is my target size for the delivery of that entire page, including the HTML, the CSS, the JavaScript, and all of the images on that page. This is what I'm willing to devote to that. And then you actually use that performance budget as a way of determining what gets in and what doesn't on your page. So you don't end up with a responsive site that has 35 megabyte pages, which there are responsive sites out there with 35 megabyte pages. So if you want, want to do some reading up, Tim Cadlick has some great articles on performance budgets, uh, as do the folks at ClearLeft. That's a really, uh, really good thing to look into. Another one is considering physical limitations and, and how people interact with our interfaces. Um, so to, at the most basic kind of degree, font sizes. You know, how, how large are you setting the fonts? Are they scalable to the user? Because as we age, most of us suffer from macular degener degeneration and need to increase the font size of our pages in order to read them. Um, do we have enough contrast in, those, in the text, the text up against the, the background and such? Um, are there buttons that you can actually see and actually look like buttons? iOS 7 is a big fail there. Everything just looks like text. Um, are we supporting keyboards? This is another thing that, that a lot of folks that I talk to don't often think about. They only think about the mouse-based interaction. Um, and they're like, okay, you know, we don't, we don't have any blind users who would be keyboard-based. Well, you know, chances are, yes, you do, but beyond that, blind users aren't the only people who surf with the keyboard primarily. I know a lot of power users who never touch their mouse who are only based on their keyboard. So in order to provide them with a good experience, making sure that your interfaces support keyboard-based interactions as well. 
don't create unnecessary, ooh, don't create unnecessary barriers for your users. So this comes down to things like loading all of your content via Ajax. Well, if JavaScript fails for some reason or Ajax isn't available, if that's how you're loading all of your content, then none of that content is gonna appear for that user. So you're putting all your eggs in that basket and it may not be there. Having specific browser requirements, um, this is another example of that. Unless you are creating an intranet for a, a company that is entirely on a single browser, you can't rely on just testing in one browser. Uh, Kelly mentioned we have the, the Chattanooga Open Device Lab here. We've got about 50 different devices that you can come and test on for free. Um, we also have browser stack that you can test a combination of like 500 more devices and, and platforms. Um, and you should be testing your, your work on different browsers because you end up with really strange bugs that crop up. I had one in, in Android 2.3 where I was, I was using generated content and I was generating this colored bar across the top. And in Android 2.3, when I rotated the device, it duplicated the bar every time I rotated the device. So I could actually do this over and over again and get a stack of bars going down the page, which was completely strange. Um, didn't happen anywhere else, but thank you, Android 2.3. Um, and the other thing that we have to realize is, you know, while we may hope for the best in terms of the, the browsers that people are using to access our content, in some instances, people actually can't upgrade for one reason or another. Um, I, I remember a, a story, I don't remember what the, the blog was that I read it on, but somebody was relaying a story about being at Costco and he was at the, the eye care desk and um, was talking to the, the person there, the optometrist there, about uh, just some, some random stuff and happened to glance over at his computer and saw that it was Windows XP and there was an alert about having to, to install like the latest update or something like that, security patch. And so he's like, oh, it looks like you've got an update. And he's like, yeah, I know I need to upgrade from Windows XP to something else, but if I do that, I have to get the new version of the software that runs my business, which is like $10,000. And there's no additional functionality that I need that that gives me, so that's just $10,000 I have to pay in order to upgrade from Windows XP to Windows 7 or 8 or whatever it was at the time. So there are some times that, that our users just can't upgrade. And we probably are not in the situation where we can send all of our customers a new computer. Right. Uh, there was actually a nursing association that did that. They found the, the like 20 people that were still using Windows XP and they actually sent them new laptops. You know, we, we probably can't do that. Um, we shouldn't be forcing our own agenda on our customers. This is one of my favorite XKCD cartoons. Want to visit an incomplete version of our website where you can't zoom? Download our app. Okay or no, but ask me again every time. That's the experience that we have in a lot of cases. And you know, we can't make assumptions that we know what our user wants. An example in this case, I, I think, is high-res images. So yes, we have these you know, high DPI displays. We've got you know, Retina MacBook Pros. We've got you know, Retina displays on iPad 3s, et cetera, et cetera. We have high-resolution displays for Android. We have these new 4000 or 4K displays for televisions and such. Um, and that means we can push a lot more pixels to them, right, and get them really sharp images. But those are exponentially larger. So a retina image is, you know, twice as large in both dimensions, which means it's, you know, roughly four times the size of the original image, right, just to get a higher resolution image. And same thing with HD video. And we shouldn't do things like put those in there by default, um, or perhaps autoplay high definition video. Um, because 
you know, maybe our customers don't want that, or maybe we're actually costing our customers money when we make decisions like that for them. I'll give you an example of that. I was actually traveling uh, abroad, and so I had my, my data plan that I had, I had paid through the nose for to AT&T, and um, I think Chrome crashed, and I had a number of tabs open, and one of those tabs happened to be to an HD video on YouTube, um, and when Chrome relaunched, it nicely opened all the tabs again for me, um, and YouTube, which was in the background, in one of the background tabs, nicely auto-played the video for me, and I, of course, had my computer muted, so I didn't know that it was playing it, and I was tethered to my phone, and so I was just chewing through my data really quick. That was really awesome of YouTube to do that for me. Um, but, you know, sometimes we make decisions like that as designers and developers, and we implement that sort of stuff thinking that we're giving a better experience when, in fact, we're actually putting a tax on our users or potentially costing them real hard-earned cash, which is not a good thing. Um, if you do, you know, if you do want to explore doing high-resolution images, that's okay. You can, but give your user the option. You can detect, you know, that, that they have a high DPI screen and say, hey, would you like sharper images? You know, we can, we can load in the, the higher resolution images for you and then store their preference for the session and let them be in control so that they have the option of doing it or not. And if they opt out, no problem. We should also think about common assistive technology that's, that's being used, whether that's screen readers, um, whether that's uh, braille displays, those sorts of things, touch feedback devices. Um, and we should embrace new technologies that are available to us, like ARIA, which is the Accessible Rich Internet Application Spec. And, and we can apply that to our sites in order to bring more complicated interfaces, like tabbed interfaces and accordions and the like, to life for those people. Um, we need to make smarter decisions about how we hide content and whether that content is exposed to somebody who is using assistive technology, because it might not be if you're doing an accordion and you're using display none to hide the content. Um, and you're never actually um, showing them that content uh, in, a, in a screen reader capable capacity. Um, and then use JavaScript to actually enhance the experience because you can use JavaScript to actually make pages more accessible. It's, you know, in, in kind of traditional web design, we often thought of JavaScript and accessibility as being opposed, but they're not. You can actually do some really great stuff with JavaScript like you know, creating a better flow using the tab key, which is one of the common ways that people who use screen readers or use the keyboard to navigate get through pages. Really what it all comes down to is considering the golden rule. Now, I, I came up in a, in a mixed Catholic and, and Lutheran household, so for me it was the Christian version, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but this concept exists in most religions and philosophies in the world. And it's just all about treating someone as you would like to be treated, to put yourself in their shoes, to have empathy for that person. And this is what led me in my own web design practice to really focus on this idea of progressive enhancement, of building a core experience and then enhancing that experience as the capabilities of the device make it possible to do so. So as somebody has the ability to display CSS, go ahead and apply CSS. As they have JavaScript capability, add in JavaScript. As they have different APIs within JavaScript, add, add in those features. Take advantage of that and create an experience that progresses from something that's very core, like a peanut, to something that is fantastic, like a peanut M&M. Okay? Um, 
I wish I had come up with this quote ben, that Ben Ho came up with a, a couple years back. Progressive enhancement keeps the design open to the possibilities of sexiness in opportune contexts, rather than starting with the whole experience, which is often what we think about in web design, what is the ideal state, and then sacrificing things for people who don't have the right devices. So it's just all about thinking about opportunities to create a sexier interface. Which, when you boil it down to it, is really about egalitarianism. And the idea of egalitarianism is that you create equal opportunity for people to experience something or to participate in something. It's not necessarily assuming that they're going to have equality of outcome. So it's, it's not like you're leveling the play, playing field entirely in terms of the expected uh, end state for everyone in the world, but you want to give them the equal opportunity to start off on the same foot and to have a good experience. And when we think about design from that standpoint, that's when we're designing with empathy. Thank you all very much.